Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the podcast segment of our show that's not broadcast on Station KALA. Our guest for this 422nd show is Dr. Ray Doswell, Vice President of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and we're going to be talking about the history of baseball's Negro Leagues. Our history buffs are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. Terry, why don't you start us off? Okay. Ray, for some of us who don't know a lot about baseball, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the history of of the museum and um, the teams. So I read that... um, Baseball started actually about the late 1800s. Uh, African Americans were playing on military teams and college teams and company teams. Um, but then uh, laws, well, the Jim Crow laws forced many from these teams by 1900. And so then I read that there was something called barnstorming around the country. If you could talk about that and then how that leads up to uh, 1920 and the creation of the Negro Leagues. So what you have actually is that um, there are a handful of African-Americans who are actually playing on what would become major league teams in the late 1800s or would be designated as major league teams in the 1800s. So these are African-Americans and Latinos, I should say, too. They're playing on white teams uh, in the 1800s. Uh, of note, there's a player like uh, Moses Walker, uh, from Ohio, playing with uh, with and against white players, um, but he and a few others by 1900 are kind of pushed out. Uh, there was never a written rule per se that kept them from playing on all white major league teams. Uh, just more collusion, uh, which kind con- which connects to just the the mores of the time and. In some cases, uh, this relevant Jim Crow laws made made it more difficult in certain places for black and white to play together. But in general terms, there wasn't a written rule that kept them from playing just what historians have described as the so-called gentleman's agreement among owners and managers to collude to keep black players from major league teams. So black baseball enthusiasts and entrepreneurs say, okay, well, we'll do our own thing. We'll try to create our own teams. Uh, many of them, uh, what you would call barnstorming, um, which wasn't always the norm, but what that meant was that teams would travel from place to place without a set schedule. They could play all levels of competition, all races and colors. Um, they would travel and set up some level of 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 schedule for themselves with advanced work with different communities and try to go from place to place. And sometimes they would just go from place to place hoping to find a team to play. Um, There were a number of black teams around, but they didn't always play each other and certainly didn't play on a regular basis in a schedule because they didn't have any league structures. League being teams that agree to play on a schedule, play common opponents, um, through a length of games and a determined season and then maybe determine a champion at the end of that season. So without a league schedule, uh, 
traveling from place to place as if you were a traveling circus or something like that had its benefits if you were very good, but uh, had a lot of instability because you didn't know when your revenue was going to be coming in. You didn't know if you were going to be able to get games or be able to reschedule games or events uh, without a league schedule that made it more difficult. So there are a number of attempts to create leagues among certain teams or groupings of teams, but none were as successful as the Midwestern team owners who came together uh, in 1920 in Kansas City to develop uh, what would become the Negro National League. And these were mostly Midwestern teams represented Kansas City, Chicago, St. Louis, Indianapolis, Dayton, Ohio, among others, uh, Detroit as well. Um, and that was the beginnings of the league structure. Now, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is as the country is evolving, both uh, uh, with population and transportation, uh, between this, the Negro Leagues, the story of the Negro Leagues is steeped in the great migration of African Americans. And for those who don't understand that period from the end of slavery and Reconstruction in the South through to the beginning of World War II, African Americans are moving by the millions across the country from rural areas to urban areas as the country is becoming more industrial and from the South altogether to urban centers in the Midwest and in the Northeast to cities like Kansas City or Chicago or Detroit or New York or Memphis looking for jobs, trying to find jobs in the growing industries like meatpacking, automobiles, um, in Birmingham that would be iron factories and things like that. Um, hoping to escape racism and Jim Crow, unfortunately getting different versions of that in these cities, uh, but still creating cultural enclaves in these communities where they can build their own banks and churches and schools. And among those businesses were baseball teams. And as the population grew and people's incomes grew, there were people who had money to go and watch leisure activities like baseball. The roads are improving, so there's less use of trains and more use of motor cars and motor coaches. So people are moving. Teams can now move more freely and not depend on train stations as well uh, uh, to you know, figure out scheduling for games. They can move more freely, get more games, make more money. And so things began to kind of grow after that. Okay, Ed. Yeah. Um, Ray, can you talk about how uh, physical artifacts come into the museum's collection? Um, and are there any uh, of the old Negro Leagues players still alive? Um, and how do you handle their stories? So as far as artifacts are concerned, the museum primarily gets donations uh, from uh, collectors and or former players of certain items. Uh, but you are more um a lot of those things tend to be more memorabilia related people have collected autographs and things like that, uh, which are interesting and we do collect uh but um from the former players, we try to get uh anything that's truly artifactual like um old equipment and uniforms uh which all that stuff is extremely rare, extremely rare. Uh, but photographs tend to be uh, the most prevalent uh, of items that people collect and keep, either former players or family members. And we do ask uh, for donations of that or, or in some cases of photographs or paper objects like manuscripts or 
or or contracts we we may borrow them to at least get digital copies so that we can have a record of it um and when possible when we have the resources we're able to compete at auction for items when they when they appear for artifacts when they appear in the different auctions that are held around the country as well so uh it's a balance of but i'd say the majority of our collections have been donated uh by from various sources and uh a much smaller percentage purchased but um uh we do have some significant pieces that have been purchased as far as the former players um we estimate around 100 or less of actual players who played in the primary periods of black baseball in the Negro Leagues. Uh, and most of them are in their, and uh, would be considered younger players in their 80s, if you will. Um, they're in there a handful of players who are still alive who are in their 90s. But many of those who played in what you might call the heyday of the Negro Leagues have passed on. Now, uh, the caveat to that is that we're speaking about the primary Negro Leagues, 1920-1960, the business structure uh, in those teams and players who participate on those teams. But there's a whole nother universe of black baseball players, <coughs> excuse me, that played on African-American teams that a lot of people lump into this generalized uh, notion of Negro Leagues, but it's just different than the top-level black teams. But there are a number of those, and some of those teams lasted well past 1960, so some of those men and participants are quite younger, um, and the experience is just different. It's not the same as the high-level Negro Leagues, but there are a number of those folks who are still around. And that's just, it's not necessarily part of the stories that we collect but you know it's still important to understand their story and the connection to the integration of america ray i get the honor of having the last question here and i want to kind of go back and piggyback off something terry had talked about um my understanding was that for a lot of of the players even playing at the upper levels of the the negro leagues um, that that there these were folks who were really playing just for the love of the game. They weren't being paid for playing. Uh, they held down jobs uh, in factories or whatever during the week, and then they played baseball. Um, and I just in in the an era in which money seems to be have become so much a part of our sports experience and and so important. Uh, to, to you know, to looking at and evaluating, um, you know, I just I think people need to kind of hear that 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 money hasn't always been the only motivator. Not not that all those folks wouldn't have loved to get paid. Thank you very much. Um, but can you talk a little bit about how the lifestyle of a person uh, who played in the Negro Leagues leagues would have been? Let me caution you against that romantic notion. <laughs> These guys wanted to be paid. Sure, <laughs> let's, sure they let's did. Not, let's Just because they, they weren't right. <laughs> yeah, but they wanted to. They wanted to be paid. I think. I think it is fair to say that they did love the game because for them, knowing though that there were limitations on one their ability to go to the very top of Major League Baseball. And to try to play, in some cases, under certain conditions um, that 
were certainly not always on the same level of Major League Baseball. You had to love the game in order to do that. Uh, when the money was, was okay, um, but maybe not enough to sustain a family, which many athletes had to make a choice. Sometimes if they wanted to start a family, you probably needed to go get a job in a factory or something like that. I think it's fair to say that your superstar players actually did quite well. Um, the Satchel Pages and the Josh Gibsons did pretty well uh, because they could command additional revenue. And, and the other thing was that they could also play all year round uh, in that they could play a part of the season in Negro Leagues. They can go play in Latin America both in the late winter and the early winter uh, or, or the, the early winter and the late winter going into spring and play baseball all year round between the United States and Latin America. So they were able to make quite a bit of money and do quite well and get a lot of celebrity that way. But it is true that players often... Most most of their games were usually on the weekends unless they were traveling. There could have been times where they traveled quite a bit, but uh, they had other jobs uh, in the post office, in the car factory, and other places. And certainly in the off-season, they needed to maintain those jobs. Um, some might have been teachers. And, and so... Um, this was this was certainly uh, something that you had to do for the love of the game, considering the conditions, and not, at least at a certain time period, not seeing that there was going to be light in the tunnel for the opportunity to integrate and play Major League Baseball. Uh, but as you get post World War II or into World War II and beyond things start to open up and the possibilities begin to happen. Uh, it's just that unfortunately the the real star players of the Negro Leagues that people know were probably too old to get that opportunity. But rushing in were new stars. And if you look at the record books and you see the, the names of the players who came in right after Jackie Robinson, uh, Roy Campanella, um, uh, Willie Mays, Henry Aaron, these are some of the greatest players in baseball history. And it just showed the level of talent that was waiting to blossom in baseball. And, and as a result, it made the game better and our country better. All right. Uh, well said. <laughs> we would like to thank our guest for this 422nd show, Dr. Ray Doswell, Vice President of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, who talked to us about the history of baseball's Negro Leagues. The history buffs for today's show were Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2, 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put K-A-L-A Radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station K-A-L-A, St. Ambrose University.